0: Wow, I am tired today. Okay. Um, So where we left off, uh, we were talking about that guy. (laughs) We were talking about that grown man named Cork. Walgreens' brightest future lay in convenience stores, not food service. Dan Jornt, another great name, J-O-R-N-D-T who succeeded Walgreen as CEO in 1998, described what happened next. (laughs) He did not, by the way, change the name to Jorns. Cork said at one of our planning committee meetings, Okay, now I'm going to draw this line in the sand. We're going to be out of the restaurant business completely in five years. At the time, we had over 500 restaurants. You could have heard a pin drop. He said, I want to let everybody know the clock is ticking. Six months later, we were at our next planning committee and uh, someone mentioned just in passing that we only had five years to be out of the restaurant business. Cork was not a real vociferous fellow. He sort of tapped on the table and said, listen, you have four and a half years. I said you had five years six months ago. Now you've got four and a half years. Okay, yes. Yes, I get it. Well, that next day, things really clicked into gear uh, into winding down the restaurant business. He never wavered. He never doubted. He never second-guessed. Okay, now, that is totally contrary to the thing you said that was interesting earlier about how you have to have the confidence, but be willing to look at your mistakes and admit that you make mistakes and fix them. Uh, You can't just never second-guess yourself, but Like Darwin Smith selling the mills at Kimberly-Clark, Cork-Walgreens' decision required stoic resolve. Not that food service was the largest part of the business, although it did add substantial profits to the bottom line. The real problem was more emotional. Walgreens had, after all, invented the malted milkshake, and food service was a long-standing family tradition dating back to his grandfather. Some food service outlets were even named after the CEO himself. A restaurant chain named Corky's. <laughs> they later decided to stick with Walgreens. That's funny. But no matter if Walgreens had to fly in the face of long standing family tradition in order to focus its resources where it could be the best in the world, convenient drugstores, Cork would do it quietly, doggedly, simply. The quiet, dogged Jesus Christ, you can't use dogged four words apart. The quiet, dogged nature of level 5 leaders showed up not only in big decisions like selling off the food service operations or fighting corporate raiders, but also in personal style of sheer workmanlike diligence. Alan Wurzel, a second-generation family member who took over his family's small company and turned it into Circuit City, perfectly captured the gestalt of this trait. When asked about the differences between himself and his counterpart CEO at Circuit City's comparison company, Wurzel summed up, the Show Horse and the Plow Horse. He was more of a show horse. Oh, what's this one going to be? Whereas I, I was more of a, let's say a page turn, plow horse. Nice. Nice. The Window and the Mirror. That's a cool title for a chapter. Sub-chapter, sub whatever. Alan Wurzel's plow horse comment is fascinating in light of two other facts. First, he holds a Doctor of Jurisprudence degree from Yale. Clearly, his plow horse nature had nothing to do with a lack of intelligence. Second, his plowhorse approach set the stage for truly best-in-show results. Let me put it this way. If you had to choose between $1, <laughs> this is not a novel way to put it, if you had to choose between $1 invested in Circuit City or $1 invested in General Election on the day that legendary Jack Welch took over GE in 1981 and held to January 1st, 2000, you would have been better off with Circuit City by six times. Not a bad performance for a plow horse. You might expect that extraordinary results like these would lead Ann to discuss the brilliant decisions he made. But when, he asked, uh, when we asked him to list the top five factors in his company's transformation, ranked by importance, Hortzok gave a surprising answer. The number one factor was luck. We were in a great industry, with the wind at our backs. We pushed back, pointing out that we selected the good to great companies based on performance that surpassed their industry's average. Furthermore, the comparison company, Silo, was in the same industry with the same wind and probably bigger sales. We debated the point for a few minutes, with Wurzel continuing his preference for attributing much of his success to just being in the right place at the right time. Later, when asked to discuss the factors behind the enduring nature of the the transformation, he said, the first thing that comes to mind is luck. I was lucky to find the right successor. Luck. What an odd factor to talk about. No, it's not. It's perfectly fine to... Um, not look at that factor because it's not something you can control. And to try and pin down what separated him from the silo company, that's fine. But as far as what his success can be attributed to, as opposed to any business, there's always going to be luck involved. Yet the good-to-great executives talked a lot about luck in our interviews, In one interview with a new core executive, we asked why the company had such a remarkable track record of good decisions. He responded, I guess we were just lucky. Okay, you can just say... I don't need to hear verbatim his fucking quote. Joseph F. Coleman, 3D. I don't know why he does it that way. I don't like it. Just put an R in there, uh, and then I don't have to wonder whether it's... I mean, are the rest of the guys in two D? Is that the implication? The level five transition CEO of Philip Morris. Oh, another another wonderful company. Just let's. You know what? Your next book should be about uh, ethics. And uh, let's take a look at Philip Morris again. Uh, flat out refused to take credit for his company's success. Oh yeah, this he's a he's a classically great guy. No, I attribute it mostly to luck to the hard work of the people under me, and to addiction. Addiction was a big part of it. Uh, He attributed his good fortune to having great colleagues, successors, and predecessors, and to have misleading ad campaigns where doctors said it was healthy to smoke. Even the book he wrote, a book he undertook, At the urging of his colleagues, which he never intended to distribute widely outside the company. All right, I get it. He's fucking modest as fuck. That's a good title, actually. Modest as fuck. That's what it should be called. Had the unusual title, I'm a lucky guy. Ew, gross. It's not unusual. Lucky isn't lucky. Lucky strikes. That's the joke. That's the fucking joke. You stupid fuck. The opening paragraph reads, I was a very... Who is it? I mean, that's the joke. Yeah, that's definitely the joke. The opening paragraph reads, I was a very lucky guy from the very beginning of my life. Marvelous parents, good genes, lucky in love, lucky in business, and lucky when a Yale classmate had my orders changed to report to Washington, D.C. in early 1941 instead of to a ship that was sunk with all hands lost in the North Atlantic. Lucky to be in the Navy and lucky to be alive at 85. We were all at first puzzled by this emphasis on good luck. After all, we found no evidence that great companies were blessed with more good luck, or bad luck for that matter, than the comparison companies. Can I just point out your whole thing about the scientific method that you use? That's precisely designed to account for factors like luck. That's why it's not going to show... Like, you have failed if the luck still turns up to be the defining characteristic separating them. That means you've made a bad study. That's the whole point of whatever. You get the point. Actually, you don't because you're... Then we began to notice a contrasting pattern in the comparison executives. They credited substantial blame to bad luck, frequently bemoaning the difficulties of the environment they faced. I'm going to need an example. Compare Bethlehem Steel to Nucor. Both companies operated in the steel industry and produced hard-to-differentiate products. Both both companies faced the competitive challenge of cheap imported steel. Yet executives at the two companies had completely different views of the same environment. Bethlehem Steel's CEO summed up the company's problems in 1983 by blaming imports. Our first, second, and third problems are imports. Ken Iverson and his crew at Nucor considered the same challenge from imports a blessing, a stroke of good fortune. Aren't we lucky? Steel is heavy, and they have to ship it all the way across the ocean, giving us a huge advantage. Iverson saw the first, second, and third problems facing the American steel industry not to be imports, but management. He even went so far as to speak out publicly against government protection against imports, telling a stunned gathering of fellow steel executives in 1977 that, The real problems facing the American steel industry lay in the fact that management had failed to keep pace with innovation. The emphasis on luck turns out to be part of a pattern that we came to call the window and the mirror. Here's our little box. Level 5 leaders look out the window to apportion credit to factors outside themselves when things go well, and if they cannot find a specific person or event to give credit to, they credit good luck. At the same time, they look in the mirror to apportion responsibility, never blaming bad luck when things go poorly. The comparison leaders did just the opposite. they look out the window for something or someone outside themselves to blame. Yeah, we get what the opposite is. Strangely, the window and the mirror do not reflect objective reality. Everyone outside the window points inside, directly at the level 5 leader, saying, He was the key. Without his guidance and leadership, we would not have become a great company. And the level 5 leader points right back at the window and says... Look at all the great people and good fortune that made this possible. I'm a lucky guy. They're both right, of course. But the level fives would never admit that fact. Cultivating level five leadership. Not long ago, I shared the level five finding with the gathering of senior executives. A woman who had recently become chief executive of her company raised her hand and said, I believe what you say about the good to great leaders. But I'm disturbed because when I look in the mirror, I know that I'm not level 5. Not yet, anyway. Part of the reason I got this job is because of my ego drives. Are you telling me that I can't make this a great company if I'm not level 5? I don't know for certain that you absolutely must be a level 5 leader to make your company great, I replied. I will simply point back to the data. Of the 1,435 companies that appeared on the Fortune 500 and our initial candidate list, Only 11 made the very tough cut into our study. In those 11, all of them had level 5 leadership in key positions, including the CEO, at the pivotal time of transition. She sat there, quiet for a moment, and you could tell everyone in the room was mentally urging her to ask the question. Finally, she said, Can you learn to become level 5? Summary The Two Sides of Level 5 Leadership Professional Will and Personal Humility I, you know what? I'm not going to do this page. I don't think we need a summary. And now we have an ex... <laughs> at the bottom of the summary, we have table summary. A table shows the summary of the two sides of level 5 leadership. We have a summary of the summary. We literally have a summary of the... Okay. <sighs> My hypothesis is that there are two categories of people. Those who do not have the seed of level five and those who do. The first category consists of people who can never in a million years bring themselves... Okay, we... The first sentence is fine. Uh... The great irony is that the animus and personal ambition that often drive people to positions of power stand at odds with the humility required for level 5 leadership. When you combine that irony with the fact that boards of directors frequently operate under the false belief that they need to hire a larger-than-life egocentric leader to make an organization great, you can quickly see why level 5 leaders rarely appear at the top of our institutions. The second category of people, and I suspect the larger group, consists of those who have the potential to evolve to level 5. The capability resides within them, perhaps buried or ignored, but they are nonetheless. And under the right circumstances, self-reflection, conscious personal development, a mentor, a great teacher, loving parents, a significant life experience, a level 5 boss, or any number of other factors, they begin to develop. How come I woke up in the middle of the night, all wet and sticky? Well, you're developing into a level five leader. In looking at the data, we noticed that some of the leaders in our study had significant life experiences that might have sparked or furthered their maturation. Darwin Smith fully blossomed. Don't sit. Don't say that. I don't like that. After his experience with cancer, Joe Coleman was profoundly affected by his World War II experiences particularly the last minute change of orders that took him off a doomed ship. Oh, but you surely would have died. A strong religious belief for conversion might also nurture development of level five traits. Oh, great. Coleman Mockler, for example, converted to evangelical Christianity while getting his MBA at Harvard, and later, according to the book Cutting Edge, became a prime mover in a group of Boston business executives who met frequently over breakfast to discuss the carryover of religious values to corporate life. The most boring group of people to ever live. Other leaders in our study, however, had no obvious catalytic event. They just led normal lives and somehow ended up atop the level 5 hierarchy. (laughs) Although it is funny he is equating becoming religious with getting cancer. I believe, although I cannot prove, that potential 5 leaders are highly prevalent in our society. Their problem is not, in my estimation, a dearth of potential level 5 leaders. They exist all around us if we just know what to look for. And what is that? Look for situations where extraordinary results exist, but where no individual steps forth to claim the excess credit. You will likely find a potential level 5 leader at work. For your own development, I would love to be able to give you a list of steps for becoming level 5, but we have no solid research data that would support a credible list. Our research exposed level 5 as a key component inside the black box of what it takes to shift a company from good to great. Yet inside that black box is yet another black box, namely the inner development of a person to level 5. We could speculate on what might be inside that inner box, but it would be mostly just that, speculation. So in short, level 5 is a very satisfying idea, a powerful idea, and to produce the best transitions from good to great, perhaps an essential idea. A 10-step list to level 5 would trivialize the concept. that's... That's kind of cool. Um, I think it would mean more if the book weren't exam weren't like a constant example of how much he does the opposite mistake of just making a list of bullet points, which is really drawing everything out. But uh, still, point taken. My best advice, based on the research, is to begin practicing. <laughs> Evangelical Christianity. Now, as to begin practicing the other good to great disciplines we discovered, we found a symbiotic relationship between level 5 and our remaining findings. On the one hand, level 5 traits enable you to implement the other finding. On the other hand, practicing the other findings helps you to become level 5. This is getting really abstract. Think of it this way. This chapter is about what level 5s are. The rest of the book describes what they do. Leaving with the other disciplines can help you move in the right direction. There is no guarantee that doing so would turn you into a full-fledged level 5, but it gives you a tangible place to begin. We can't say for sure what percentage of people have the seed within. <laughs> I think it's about 50%. Uh, or how many people can nurture it, also the other 50%. Even those of us who discovered Level 5 on the research team do not know for ourselves whether we will succeed in fully evolving to Level 5. And yet, all of us who worked on the finding have been deeply affected and inspired by the idea. Darwin Smith, Coleman Mockler, Alan Wurzel, and all the other Level 5s we learned about have made models for us, something worthy to aspire to. Whether or not we make it all the way to level five is worth the effort. For like all basic truths about what is best in human beings, when we catch a glimpse of that truth, we know that our own lives and all that we touch will be better for the effort. All right. And we have another summary. Level five leadership. All right, let's do it. Every good to great company had level five leadership during the pivotal transition years. Level 5 refers to a 5-level hierarchy of executive capabilities with level 5 at the top. Level... Okay, I'm not going to read that one. Level 5 leaders set up their successor for even greater success in the next generation. Level 5 leaders display a compelling self-modesty. I, I, I'm just... I'm making my summary of the summary of the summary. Uh, level 5 leaders are fanatically driven and infected with an incurable need to produce sustained results. They resolve to do whatever it takes to make the company great no matter how big or hard the decisions. Level 5 leaders display a workmanlike diligence. More plow horse than show horse. Level 5 leaders look out the window to... Yeah, we just did that one. One of the most damaging trends in recent history is the tendency, especially by boards of directors, to select dazzling celebrity leaders and to deselect potential level 5s. I believe that potential level 5 leaders exist all around us, so we just know what to look for, and that many people have the potential to evolve into level 5. Unexpected findings. Larger-than-life celebrity leaders who write in front- Okay, we just- Level 5 leaders attribute much of their success to good luck, rather than personal greatness. And finally, we were not looking for level 5 leadership in our research or anything like it, but the data was overwhelming and convincing. It is an empirical, not an ideological finding.